Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's Thursday, February 3rd, and you're tuned into the Cleveland Baseball Talk podcast. I'm Joe Noga, joined by Paul Hoynes. Hoynesy, uh, the latest in the Major League Baseball negotiations, uh, labor talks, uh, really not a lot to report, but it, it really just, you get the feeling that they're, they're sort of dancing around the, the core issues here, the core economic issues, uh, and you know, they're sort of feeding us updates on you know, issues that we already knew were on the table and were pretty much agreed upon, uh, like a universal DH for next season and uh, some, some other sort of, you know, you know playoff formats and uh, dropping draft pick compensation and, and possibly eliminating the, uh, um, the qualifying offer, things like that, that have already been discussed or, or at least been out there in the media. Uh, these seem like things that can be, you know, put to bed pretty quickly. Uh, and, you know, the question is, why aren't they digging in on, on these big core issues yet? Yeah, I think uh, you're, you're kind of chipping away at the outside, Joe, instead of just jumping in with both feet. You know, maybe both sides are reluctant to do that. But, you know, when they when they have, you know, addressed the major issues, there hasn't been a whole lot of progress. Uh, you know, a couple of days ago they met. Uh, the, the players said they would reduce the bonus pool, their, their request for a bonus pool for, you know, players that weren't eligible for arbitration from, 105 million to 100 billion. So that's like a $5 billion deduction. And the owners haven't come off there you know, as, as, as long as, we, as far as we know, they haven't really come off there. You know, the, their proposal, I think with the last one was 30 million or 10, mm-hmm. to, 10 to 30 million w- with their bonus pool. Uh, I think there's been some movement um, in, uh, you know, with, uh, with the, uh, uh, you know, with service time, I mean, with service time manipulation in, uh, you know, they, they've talked about, you know, you know, getting more money in the players of younger players, more money in the hands of the younger players, you know, by ways of a reward system, uh, a, you know, a performance system. Uh, and uh, the union seems to be open to uh, the uh, owner's, uh, you know, the owner's proposal of, uh, you know, offering draft picks to teams that, you know, don't manipulate a younger player's service time that put them on the 26-man roster. Right. Uh, players such as Max Scherzer and uh, Andrew Miller, a former Cleveland player, uh, are, are really sort of spearheading the, the player's side of the negotiations here. And, and, and they talked uh, just within the last couple of days here uh, really pointedly about how the offers that are sort of trickling out of the, the league here from – for Major League Baseball uh, aren't really, you know, like we said, sort of moving the needle. Uh, they mentioned things like competitive integrity and service time manipulation, and even just like, you know, 
the owners undervaluing uh, or, or sort of underselling how, how valuable their franchises are uh, all in an effort to sort of, you know, keep what they have already. Uh, this is, uh, do, do you think if, if the players just sort of have continue this sort of bold rhetoric, I guess uh, it's going to make things happen a little more quickly. Well, I, I don't know, you know, uh, Scherzer is a, a Scott Boros guy. Boros is, always pointed to the value, the increasing value of, uh, of franchises to uh, say that there's no really poor teams in, in Major League Baseball. There's no really small market teams. They can all afford, you know, you know, big, big payrolls. They just choose not to. So, you know, Scott wants the most money for his players and, and he wants it now, you know, and I mean, he's a good agent. That's what you want, but you know, you have to remember that's what's motivating, you know, a lot of the a lot of the talk from the union. You mean these aren't these uh, Andrew Miller and uh, Max Scherzer aren't, uh, you know, Norma Ray standing up there with a, a sign over <laughs> her head? They're not. Uh, union. They're not. They're not pushing these for just like altruistic, you know, uh, sort of uh, the unity of uh, of the players. I I just can't imagine that they're going after the highest dollar there. Uh, <laughs> no, I. But but really, you know. I'm going to side with, you know, labor on, on most issues here anyways, uh, at, at least from, from my perspective on it, but to, to see that, you know, these, these talks continue to, to drag out slowly. I'm, I'm in favor of seeing guys, you know, making bold statements and, and trying to get things, you know, going as quickly as possible because, Hey, uh, you know, the players and the owners aren't the only ones affected by this, uh, this impasse right now. Yeah, you know, there's, there's, you know, we haven't heard about anything yet, but you know, it's coming. If this lingers, you know, the people are going to start getting laid off. They're going to, you know, the spring training workers, you know, the, the guys that, you know, the, that run the, the facilities in spring training are going to, you know, be without, uh, you know, they're, they're going to get laid off. It, we've seen it all before. And it's always the little guy that seems to get, to get hurt the most here. It seems like they always start with the scouting department or the scouts because everybody loves the scouts. Those guys are, you know, those guys are such, uh, you know, big parts of, of organizations. You always say, oh, they're laying off, you know, a bunch of field scouts or whatever. And uh, it sort of tugs at your heartstrings to, to see that. You don't, you don't ever want to see that, obviously. Uh, but, but, yeah, I, this is – it just – the more and more you, you think about it, the more and more it festers. It's guys that, uh, you know, two sides that just can't seem to get out of their own way when it comes to this, this uh, major impasse and uh, it, it's, it's going to get ugly. Uh, I, I do want to talk about the universal DH just to, to circle back there uh, a little bit. Uh, there, there's a question as to, you know, who benefits more? Do the players benefit more by having, you know, 15 more guaranteed jobs out there in terms of the, the DH or, uh, or, or the, at least the opportunity for more veteran players to extend their careers, uh, you know, 15 more opportunities for that. Or do the owners benefit uh, from it by, you know, uh, you, you can get a guy in there like a Nelson Cruz can, you know, help you get into the playoffs and, and, and make a deep run. Uh, what, what sides benefit more from the, the universal DH being in place? You know, that's a, that's a good point, Joe. I, you know, I, I read something a while ago that said, you know, the average salary for the DH in the American league this past season was $9 million. So, uh, you know, Obviously, that 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 means 15 more jobs in, in the National League. And, and, you know, some of those guys, are, they're not all going to make nine million. But, 
you know, if you hire a big man guy like a Nelson Cruz, yeah, he's going to be right at that threshold. So I would think, you know, that obviously benefits players, but, you know, then you look at the way, you know, National League teams build their roster and, you know, some bench guys are going to get, you know, squeezed out of there because, you know, they National League teams like to have two or three guys, you know, that are multiple, that can play multiple positions, pinch runners, pinch hitters. And those guys kind of get, you know, if you're carrying what, 12 to 13 man pitching staffs, you know, those guys kind of lose out. So, you know, there's kind of a yin and a yang there. Well, it'll be interesting to see once the universal DH is implemented, how long it takes for National League teams to sort of convert over their their roster construction and and see, you know, uh, like you said, you could use the DH. I guess the way National League teams use a DH when they play interleague games now is you're putting in a, a guy who could play in the field, but but he's he's you know, batting as a DH in, in an American league park, uh, you know, those, like you said, those jobs will, will start to go away. Those, those super utility guys and those, those highly versatile guys that can play infield and outfield and hit uh, you'll, you'll see a lot more Framil Reyes on the rosters in, uh, in the national league. I, I think that'll, that'll take maybe a year or two or, you know, maybe even longer uh, for, for t- national league teams that have been so used to playing, and constructing their rosters a certain way to sort of change their thinking about it. Yeah, and I don't see how does the owner benefit more benefit more from the DH than than the players would. All I know is that both sides are trying to claim it as a bargaining chip. It's it, it the 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 benefits for the players' union are are clear. I, I don't see how the uh, the the owners are trying to you know use that as a a bargaining chip. This is. This is something that I think both sides obviously want. So, you know, what's what's the question? Why are you dragging your feet as long as you have? They should have had it last year. Yeah. And, you know, two years ago, they did have it in, mm-hmm. in the pandemic. Well, and they did. And, you know, and then you go back to not having it this past season and you, you've got pitchers getting injured. I think the the, the Braves suffered a, a, a pitching injury because of a because he was hitting. A, was it Flaherty or was it? One of their pitchers, uh, Flaherty, was with St. Louis, but I, I don't okay. know. Flaherty was, um, he was on the DL, though. But I, I think he, I, that the was name the, the name of the pitcher that that got injured escapes me right now. But I remember one significant uh, pitching injury because he was hitting, and uh, the talk at the time was, you know, if the the universal DH was in, then you wouldn't have this. So who knows? All right, uh, moving on. Uh, I guess today we we've arrived at uh, pretty much the. This is the the zenith, the, the 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 top of the mountain in terms of personalities. If you want to talk about, uh, you know, twenty five most important, most memorable, biggest personalities uh, in in your time covering uh, Cleveland baseball, uh, this is the one that that sort of jumps off the page at you, and you, you've got a, a, a the blind reaction. I guess is is pretty easy. Uh, it's going to be going to be obvious. Uh, right from the start, uh, an eight-time All-Star and World Series champion, uh, triple crown winner in 1940. Six times he led the American League in wins, uh, led the league in ERA in 1940, and seven times was the Major League strikeout champion uh, for Cleveland. He pitched three no-hitters, including one on opening day. He is, and all of that before Hoinsey was even born. So <laughs> th- this guy 
is is just larger than life. He's the first name you think of when you think of uh, Cleveland, the Indians, and baseball here in Northeast Ohio. Uh, Hoinsey, the the answer is obvious. It's got to be Rapid Robert, Bob Feller, <laughs> the the heater from Van Meter. You you you, you gotta love him. Uh, so obviously, when you came on the beat, Bob Feller was you know 30, 30 years removed from. Uh, playing in the big leagues, but what was what was your interaction like with him uh, around the team and when you would see him? Feller was a, an amazing guy, Joe. I um, when I first started covering uh, the Indians in uh, 1983, 84, you know, the mid 80s. Uh, I remember my first trip to Tucson, the, where they trained in spring training. And I'm, you know, I'm, you get there early in the morning for spring training and I'm, you know, there's nobody on the field and I'm sitting there looking out at right, right field. And I see this guy like in, in a Indian's uniform, full uniform, you know, <laughs> he's practicing his windup and all of a sudden he starts practicing pickoff moves at second base. Like he whirls and throws the ball against, against the outfield fence. <laughs> and I'm sitting there. Who is that? And then the closer I got, it was Bob Feller. The guy was like 65 years old and he's still practicing his pickoff move in second base. And, and I remember watching, uh, you know, a couple of spring training games that I went to down in Winter Haven where he would, he would be down there. He'd come out on the field and he would warm up and he'd be throwing and he wouldn't be like, just like lob tossing the ball to, you know, whoever he was thrown with. He's, he, and this was in the early 2000s. So, you know, he was quite a bit older at the time. And yeah, I, I, it, was, it was amazing just to see, I guess, once you get out there, you're, once you feel your, your, your cleats in the dirt, you can't help but, you know, try to, try to amp it up and try to fire it up there. Yeah, uh, baseball was what, you know, Bob Feller did. He, I don't think he did anything else. He was, you know, he was, he, I mean, he had, I think he sold insurance after he retired. But he was, you know, baseball through and through. This is a guy, Joe, that wore an Indian's uniform since he was 17 till just before the day he died on 90, when he was 92. Mm -hmm. He was on the cover of Time magazine when he was 17 years old. He made his big league debut when he was 17, you know, finished up with the Indians, then went back to Van Meter and graduated from high school. So. That's you just, you just don't see that anymore. I mean, when does a guy do that? That sounds like the script to a movie. That That's what that <laughs> sounds like. That, nowadays, they would make that into a movie and they, they would sell that script. And, you know, uh, Bob Feller would be, uh, you know, everybody's uh, household name. Uh, just the list of accomplishments that that everything you, you look at, uh, the, the record books in Cleveland, uh, the strikeout logs, the the wins, the no hitters, everything there. Uh, he's he's all over the franchise's uh, all time greats, and and you know so the the conversation sort of starts at Bob Feller, and it's everybody else is miles away. Yeah, and you know this is a guy that what won two hundred sixty six games. Um, you know, lost about four years of uh, you know three, at least three full seasons of service during World War Two. Uh, and, you know, I once asked him, uh, you know, how many games did he think he would have won if he had, you know, if he had kept pitching, if he had stayed in, in the United States or, you know, didn't enter, uh, you know, join the Navy. He said probably about 60. And then, you know, I've read some other stuff, other parts 
other people speculating that maybe it would would have won like around 80 game, 80 more games, you know, so that, you know, you, you win 80 more games, you're talking about 350 wins and who right. knows how many strikeouts, you know, the what three, no hitters, 12, one hitters, right. uh, just, just, a you know, uh, um, it's a, it's amazing. You look at, have you looked at the innings pitch Joe and the starts he made? I mean, it's, well, I mean, all, all starters were like that back then, you know, it was a right. different game, but it's incredible. Well, I remember when I was younger, sitting, sitting there watching games on the TV with my grandpa and my grandpa would, you know, they'd, they'd pull a pitcher after the fifth inning or they'd pull a pitcher after the sixth inning and my grandpa would lose his mind because he'd say, Bob Feller would be out there pitching back-to-back no uh, games in a doubleheader and, you know, still throwing hundred miles an hour. And they, uh, all the all the comparisons in the different eras. Obviously, you can't really compare what they're doing now to what you know he did back then. But uh, something tells me that at least in short bursts, maybe not over you know what he did back then, pitching nine innings at a time. But in in some way, his stuff probably would have held up like it like like today uh, in 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 today's sort of environment. Even if it's you know coming in like a, a James Karinchak or a an Emmanuel Class A at the end of a game to, you know, fire it up there at 100 miles an hour. I mean, this is uh, a, a guy who he threw hard back then. And and that was, you know, obviously they were all doing it, but he, he was special. You're talking 2,581 career strikeouts. Yeah, after he, uh, you know, after he got out of the Navy, they he was one of the first pitchers that were clocked. You know, they tried to, you know, clock his radar. And he was clocked at 98.7 miles an hour. And this was just, you know, I think a, about a year after he, you know, he got out of the service, uh, you know, and I remember talking to, uh, he was one of those first guys, Joe, that, that took care of himself, that would run in the outfield before games and would stretch. I remember when, when after he died, I talked to a bunch of older players that had faced him. One of them was Bobby Brown from the Yankees. And he said, you know, he didn't, he didn't really fraternize with anybody, you know, with, with the other team, he wasn't real friendly with the other team. <laughs> you know, you'd see other guys talking to people and, and joking around. And he goes, he, we all thought he was crazy because he was out there stretching in the outfield, running in the outfield. And then when you had to face him, he said, you know, fella kind of squinted a little bit. And you're, you're, when he looked in at the plate, you're wondering if he could see you and he's throwing a hundred miles an hour. So he had that little bit of a fear factor with them too. You never really could dig in against uh, Bob Feller. Yeah, I guess. Uh, later on, obviously, uh, you know, your interactions more with him at, during a, a great period in, in Indians uh, baseball history in, in, when they moved to Jacobs Field, uh, now Progressive Field. Uh, and, you know, they still have the, the memorial seat and a plaque there in the, in the press box. And, and Feller would be there at, at, you know, games as much as he could uh, in, I, I remember being there uh, during a during a game. I, I believe uh, Robbie Alomar uh, had a either an error or uh, it was a it was a questionable call. Uh, the official score made not a questionable call at the time, but uh, you know they posted an error or they posted a, a hit. I can't remember what it was, but you heard a whistle from uh, from Feller as he looked down to the uh, to the scorekeeper, <laughs> and it was like. Uh, Bob didn't agree with that call. So maybe we're going to take a look. This is before the, the teams would review things like that. Uh, maybe, maybe we'll change that, uh, that scoring call. That's how much yeah, I remember you know, him in spring, tra- spring training, Joe, especially in winter Haven, 
where uh, we talked to him, we, all the beat writers would be talking to him. He was like a walking, uh, a living history of baseball. You know, and I, I loved, you know, he, he, when he, he used to tour, uh, he'd get an all-star team in the off season and they tour against the Negro League all-stars. Mm-hmm. He, and he set the whole thing up. He set the schedule. He, he rented the planes. He rented the hotels. And him and Satchel Paige would pitch against each other every day. They pitched like wherever, <laughs> in every game, the first three innings of every game. And, you know, he, he, I mean, this guy, you know, he, he knew more about the Negro League players than probably anybody else. He really had played against them all and, uh, you know, really admired their skill. So, so, and I remember going down and covering games in Winter Haven and like every game beforehand, it was Bob Feller would come out in full uniform, like you said, tip yeah, his yeah. cap to everybody. And because it, it, it was a thrill for, for Indians fans to go down to Winter Haven and see games down there, you know, oh, and we got to see Bob Feller in his uniform and everything for, for the old timers. That's a big deal. Yeah. He, and he, he used to kid around. He said, you know, if you see a baseball without my, without my autograph on it's worth more than than anyone with with his autograph on because he'd signed so many autographs <laughs> in his career i mean and this uh <laughs> and you know he was really kind of a you know he was a a product of his time and it was there wasn't a lot of gray with 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 feller in in his opinions and i remember one day we're 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 sitting and he knew everybody joe he knew what every, presidents he danced with Marilyn Monroe knew Joe DiMaggio and all those guys he, he he knew everybody and and so one day in Winter Haven Bud Shaw and me and a couple other writers are sitting sitting in the in the press room um and we're talking about who's going on the DL and, and Feller walks in and he goes I'll tell you who's going on the DL Saddam Hussein <laughs> and he said I he had just got back from Washington talking to the you know some he said, I was in Washington talking to the, the, the admirals. They're going after him. <laughs> he, he, he got the download from the Joint Chiefs of Staff and came back and said, that. <laughs> wow, that's okay. That's impressive. Uh, <laughs> and just out of nowhere, you know. Just <laughs> so that, that's just an example of how he knew everybody all the way up, oh, uh, all the way up he, the he chain. He, it, was, he, it, was, it was fun just to listen to him talk. It was. It, it was, it was really, it was an experience and it was an education. What's uh, what is it obviously inducted into the, um, the hall of fame, 1962, 93% of the vote uh, of the vote got, uh, you know, on the first ballot. Uh, this is a guy who, like you said, uh, missed several seasons in his prime, you know, four or five seasons uh, in his prime uh, to, to military service. And he was, he was one of the first to, to sign up and go, uh, when his country needed him uh, to fight in World War II, uh, and then came back and had, you know, some 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 seasons after that, 46, 47, and then the 1948 uh, World Series championship team uh, for Cleveland. Uh, the the Bob Feller Act of Valor Award is, is obviously named after him, a uh, very prestigious award for, uh, you know, um, players in the league right now. Uh, just what's his legacy and what does he leave behind? And, and, and when you think about Bob Feller and, and your time covering uh, Cleveland Indians baseball, you know, what's, what's the impression that Bob Feller has left? Well, I think you hit it on the, on the, the nail on the head at the start of this, the podcast, Joe, you said, when you think of uh, Cleveland baseball, you think of Bob Feller. I mean, there's nobody else, you know, and, and maybe it'll take 
three, four, five generations from now for that to change. But, you know, it, it's going to take, it's going to take a lot of, I mean, first of all, you don't see a player stay with an organization as long as he did. And secondly, you don't ever see a player stay with the organization to have the success, the sustained success that he's had 266 wins. I mean, I mean you know, even today, that's a lot, you know, nobody's, there's not right. a starting pitcher pitching today that may, that may weigh 266 wins. It just, right. it just doesn't happen anymore. Right. Well, and cause the, the win that obviously we can talk about how the win is undervalued or devalued now, uh, nowadays compared to when it was uh, when Bob Feller was, was pitching, but uh, that, that's it. That's the, uh, that's the, the, the top of the mountain right there. The, the first face on the Mount Rushmore of, uh, of Cleveland Indians uh, players and, and in franchise history. Uh, so we'll go from there uh, here. Uh, one more, uh, one more podcast this week and, and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, Hoynes, we'll, we'll get back to you uh, tomorrow. All right, Joe. 